Hello and welcome to the World of Mouth podcast, where we share the stories of the world's best chefs and restaurateurs and their favorite destinations to travel and eat. My name is Kenneth Nars and I'm the creative director of World of Mouth, a platform that connects more than 600 restaurant experts who share their favorite restaurants, from the best place for a pizza slice, a taco or hamburger, to the latest must-visit new fine dining restaurant opening. Today we're meeting Dan Barber, the chef and co-owner of Blue Hill and Blue Hill at Stone Barns in New York State, and the author of the book The Third Plate, Field Notes on the Future of Food. Dan Barber is also an agronomist, an environmentalist, an activist, and a powerful agent of change. We will hear about how he promotes better farming practices for a more sustainable agricultural system and tastier food, by taking the farm-to-table movement to the next level. At the end of the podcast, he will reveal his recommendations to restaurants that support his idea of a sustainable restaurant. You'll also find these places in the World of Mouth app. Dan Barber, please tell me who is uh, Dan Barber. Dan Barber is the chef and co-owner of Blue Hill and Blue Hill at Stone Barns. And uh, you're located in New York State. Tell me a bit about the, the place for those who wouldn't know. Well, I'm sitting in Pecanico Hills, New York, which is 20 miles from... Manhattan, where I also have another restaurant called Blue Hill, New York City in the West Village. Okay. And um, uh, for those, I mean, uh, your background, uh, that restaurant was started. What year? Could you tell me a bit about the history of the restaurant and your uh, the, the activity that you have there? Because it's very much more than, than a restaurant. Well, first, I started Blue Hill, New York City in 2000. Uh, Blue Hill, New York City was a... A, a idea around connecting Blue Hill Farm with a restaurant in the middle of Manhattan. And the idea was to create a neighborhood restaurant that served exceptionally seasonal uh, ingredients. And the Rockefeller family, David Rockefeller, the last surviving grandson of the oil baron, J.D. Rockefeller, walked in for dinner and had a good meal and was interested in creating a restaurant here where I'm sitting in Westchester because he had a house in Westchester that he went to on the weekends and there was no place to eat in the area. And he wanted to convert his family's stone barns into a restaurant, but also reinvigorate the farm uh, back to its original intent, which was open space and and farmland that his wife, Peggy, was instrumental in running and in resurrecting because the original intent of the farm where I'm sitting was actually so the Rockefeller family, the kids could have a place to milk cows and sink their teeth into Agriculture. Their father thought they were becoming too much of city slickers. And so they built this farm just outside of New York City uh, to work the land and milk the cows. And um, it now today uh, has been resurrected as a, as a working farm that supplies vegetables and grains and animal husbandry uh, 
totaling about 250 acres uh, that supply the restaurant and beyond. And how, I mean, the, uh, the work to, to transform that, uh, the, the former activity there with the farming and so into fit, fit, to fit your restaurant, that was quite a project. How, how, how did you, uh, how many years and how did you work on that uh, transformation? Well, he came to visit Blue Hill, New York City in 2000, right, very not, far, not long after we opened. And yes, it took four years to open this, this restaurant. But I have to say, the Rockefeller family paid for everything. So it was not a torturous experience. And I was incredibly fortunate to be partners with somebody who uh, believed in setting this up in the right way. Uh, and... Uh, allowed it to actually happen with a great amount of ease. Uh, regarding regarding the, the the farming there, I mean, uh, as I said, it's 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 much more than a restaurant, and the farm actually is a very exceptional farm. Uh, during the years, it's uh, I mean, picking the varieties, finding all the varieties, and so uh, that's what you have done there, uh, and developing that whole uh, new and old uh, kind of farming. Could you mention something about that? Well, Ken, I, I'll say this. You know, we opened Stone Barns and Blue Hill Restaurant with the intent of demonstrating this concept called farm to table, which 25 years ago was a very new concept and needed a place of demonstration. Uh, and so the intent was to explore that relationship and in a very transactional way, the farm grew the vegetables and the grains and then raised the meats and the restaurant uh, supported the farm through the purchases. And that was a very successful transactional relationship. What we have come to realize now that we're 20 years in, uh, this is our 20th anniversary uh, this year, uh, is a recognition that while that work has been uh, proven and, and delicious, and nutritious and regenerative for the landscape around us, uh, it has not moved the needle in terms of what the average American eats and how they eat. In other words, the impact of farm to table, 20 years ago, I would have predicted it was the future of food. 20 years later, a hard assessment is that actually big agribusiness and corporate agriculture and monoculture have only gotten bigger, not smaller. And farm to table has been successful, but for a very small audience. And that audience is very elite because it's very expensive. And the recognition of that is you know, to be fair to the amount of resources we're devoting to this idea is to change the uh, narrative and look to what is needed now for the next 20 years. If 20 years ago demonstrating farm to table is important, now the idea is to show that the idea, the close connection between chefs and farmers and eaters and landscape is an idea that needs to uh, scale. 
uh, or spread. I prefer spread than scale. Uh, scale suggests that there's a one recipe that one could take and then create McDonald's. That's scaling. Uh, spreading is to take the idea of the relationship. How does one farm in an environment that where it's 18 degrees outside today uh, and the landscape is is rough and not uh, uh, particularly kind to vegetables. Uh, how do we utilize the area to eat in a way uh, that promotes ecological health and also human health? We think the avenue is through deliciousness and through this close connection. Uh, but we need to reconfigure farm to table and think about it a lot more deeply. And that is what we are doing now in our 20th year. We are treating the restaurant and the farm as an R&D center uh, for the future. And we are digging into projects that who, whose genesis uh, is improvement of the landscape, improvement of the soil microbiology, improvement uh, of all the parameters that allow for a healthy uh, environment uh, to grow food and the true definition of sustainability. And that is our, that is our goal. So, so 20 years ago, we wanted you know, the most incredible tomatoes in the summer and the most incredible uh, spring greens and the most incredible you know, winter kale uh, and we achieve that. Uh, our job now is to think sort of in between the rows. What are the uh, ingredients that the farm needs to grow in those seasons uh, to uh, improve that environmental functioning that I mentioned? And how can the food culture uh, pull those ideas into the mainstream food culture? How can we create a food culture where we bring that into the mainstream? I'll give you an example quickly. Uh, right now, the farm outside my window, probably 60% of it is covered in what are called cover crops. Those are crops that the farmer grows a little bit like grass uh, to keep soil in place and to feed the microbial community underground with its root system. And what we have discovered uh, in the kitchen is that those greens that are being grown as cover crops are very delicious, especially after a cold snap because those starches in the, in the greens turn to almost just pure sugar. They're very, very sweet. And what we have been doing over the years is experimenting with different kinds of cover crops. Pea cover crops, vetch, uh, cover crops that really add a lot of biomass to the micro microbial soil community, uh, but that also are very delicious to harvest. So we have been clipping the tops of these cover crops and creating salads in the kitchen that are, are exquisite and, and super delicious and also simultaneously providing an income to the farm because cover crops are lost real estate for farmers. And it is part of what makes organic farming very expensive. Uh, 
because organic farmers are forced to do a lot of cover cropping. And when you cover crop, you essentially sink real estate into something that feeds the microbial community but doesn't give you an economy for the, for the farmer. And so we are doing both now. We are creating a soil uh, economy through, through feeding the microbial community, but we are also giving the above ground, the farmer, the economy by harvesting these crops. And this is an example, an illustrative one, of what I think the new uh, uh, role for farm to table should be. We should not be thinking of farm to table in a way that we tend to think, which is like a grocery store. We go to the farmer's market and we pick this and this and this for our menu. No, we need the menu to be dictated by the farm uh, and by the farmers. And cover crops is an example of uh, a very necessary cropping strategy uh, that we and the kitchen need to support. So that is the direction for the next 20 years. Uh, this has also become, I mean, clearly become a, uh, sounds even more now, become a political issue. Uh, how much have you been involved in that one? Or, or I mean, uh, you have been uh, even contacted by Barack Obama regarding the ag- agricultural practices and so, uh, as an advisor. Uh, how much uh, do you do that anymore? Or, or which direction are you going? The politics of these ideas, uh, as you can imagine, are very complex and often very frustrating. What I have figured out and come to realize is that these issues are apolitical in the sense of moving the needle. Uh, We cannot talk about the importance of environmental stewardship Uh, in this country without coming across as very liberal, naive, uh, and uh, an elitist. And I believe the stronger position to take uh, is is post-political, is beyond political, it's apolitical, it's to drive a cohort of constituents that are drawn to flavor and hedonism and pleasure. That's a very strong political move because those, that kind of energy and that kind of advocacy then forces political action. In many ways, that's exactly what President Obama said to me. Don't, don't look to me to enact laws or policies uh, that move the needle. Make me move the needle because you have enacted the culture in a way that forces me to do it. And it's a very important point that we often miss in the political realm. Uh, So I'm not, I'm fascinated by politics and I'm drawn to it, but I don't know that time is well spent advocating for ideas that uh, don't have the constituency behind them. So I'm building the constituency, and I think that's our, you know, that's what restaurants do. We're convening places. We're places where culture now, uh, you know, is advocated for in a certain way. And I believe we can do that through the, the pleasure principle very effectively. Uh, 
Um, you also have uh, written a, a, a quite famous book about about how we should change our our eating habits, our policies about farming, uh, and so it's called the called the, the third plate. Um, could you tell me? I mean, for those who haven't read it, uh, how would you? I mean, what's your your main main uh, thesis in in that book? The main thesis in the book is the realization that I said to you seemed like it came overnight. It really came over many, many years. And the realization is that farm to table does not work in the way that that we have constructed it and the way that I have been evangelist for it for many years. And I often tell the story of standing at another farm, not this farm, at another farm not far from here that is a grain farm uh, of 2,500 acres. And I went to this farm many years ago uh, to tell the farm-to-table story from the grain perspective. Wheat, bread that we made in the restaurant came from this farm. And I wanted to essentially write the recipe of how do you grow wheat that is very delicious and very well-suited to producing the most incredible whole wheat bread. And I went to this farm to write that recipe and I was maybe there for a half an hour. I was standing on the top of, the, uh, of this hill and overlooking the farm and what I learned was that the farm didn't actually grow much wheat. What I saw wheat being grown, but as I looked around the landscape, I saw you know, I saw a lot of cover crops. Uh, I saw a tremendous amount of lowly, uncoveted crops that, at least in America, we consider them to be like buckwheat and barley and rye, tons of those. Um, and I saw leguminous crops like, like beans. Uh, and I did see wheat, but what I came to understand is that wheat was just part of the ecological pie, that in the, uh, in the realities of growing organic wheat and being an organic farmer, the necessity of having to grow lots of different crops for soil health to get the wheat to be the wheat that I wanted for my restaurant was very expensive. And this farmer was making those calculations. This farmer was making those calculations because uh, he wanted to deliver the highest quality wheat to me. But I wasn't supporting the rest of the pie. I was only supporting that small slice, the wheat. I was in many ways advocating for a very elitist transaction, which is why I think farm to table doesn't work. We look to the transaction we want. We don't look to the nose to ta- you know the nose to tail of the animal. We don't look to the nose to tail of the farm either. What's the nose to tail of the farm? The nose to tail of the farm is a very complex, diverse uh, uh, group of leguminous cover crops and other grains that add to the soil microbial community that give you that flavor in the wheat. So I left that farm, that was more than 15 years ago, and I came back here to where I'm sitting and I reevaluated everything. Because again, how could we stop treating the farm like a supermarket and start treating it uh, in its wholeness? And my menus became non-menus. I don't have menus here. We have a list of ingredients that we put together each night, but in but only for for each table. Each table has a different menu, uh, and I came to that reality because I felt like supporting the entirety of the farm 
was really the challenge for the future. And bringing awareness of that into mainstream food culture was uh, the work that I needed to do. And that's why I ended up writing the book. I didn't set out to write that book. I set out to write a much different book, The Recipe of Farm Table. In fact, I wrote a book that led me to realize that the work actually needs to become much more complicated. In the next part of the podcast, we'll hear Dan Barber's recommendations to restaurants that support his idea of a sustainable restaurant. Uh, hey, uh, if we move over to, uh, I mean, during your, your chef's career and your restaurant career there, um, there's, uh, I mean, uh, the book has been very influential. Your work has also been very influential uh, globally as well. Uh, if we talk about other places in the world, uh, some colleagues, some chefs, uh, some restaurants that um, support the thinking that you do, uh, could you mention a few of those and and uh, tell them what you think they are doing, what good they are doing? Oh well, I, I there are a lot of restaurants out there that are doing very similar work to what I'm doing. I mean, I think Jorge Vallejo. And Quintanillo in Mexico is a is a great example. It's a very different example. He's in the middle of Mexico City, and he is he has the advantage of a long history of milpas of 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 a system of agriculture that built the culture, and he is uh, taking a modern interpretation of it by also being very. Uh, having a lot of allegiance to the past and to the wisdom of the past and reinterpreting it for the future. I think it's quite brilliant. I also think Angel Leon, uh, you know, in Cadiz in, in southern Spain is doing much of the same thing, but with oceans. You know, he's looking at the ocean landscape and the oceanscape and figuring out how to develop a menu that honors the wealth of the ocean without taking individual popular uh, equivalents of wheat from the ocean, which is we, you know, we fish about 10 fish out of the ocean. Uh, and he is expanding our vocabulary of what's possible and using, in both Jorge's example and Angel's example, using culinary innovation and the cultural uh, currency, wealth that they have to bring these ideas into mainstream culture. I, I believe those two are, are very, very different examples. One's ocean wealth and the other is historical wealth. Um, and they're using the menu as the vehicle to tell that story. That's, I think, very fascinating. Very good. Uh, hey, I know that your time is running out now. I have one last question to you. And um, uh, if you could uh, close the restaurant for a few days tonight, pack your bag and travel anywhere in the world to have a meal somewhere in some restaurant or some place, which, uh, which place could that be? Well, I'd like to close the restaurant and have a meal with my wife and my two daughters. That would be lovely to spend an evening with them tonight. So that would be my go-to and if I'm doing it with my daughters I've got to include you know a pasta option here because that's about the only thing that's going to get them going um, and I've got to keep it close to home uh, and in that case uh, I'm lucky to live in New York City and have 
several incredible options uh, at at the hand. But to be honest with you, uh, on a night like this when it's 15 degrees outside, I'm probably, if the restaurant's closed, bringing home some homemade pasta and uh, opening a bottle of wine with my wife and enjoying the pleasure of my family. Okay, that's that sounds like a great option. I, I wish I wish that were a reality rather than just a, a fantasy. <laughs> Thank you for allowing well, me to go there for a minute. You never know. You never know. Uh, Dan Barber at Blue Hill, Hill at Stone Barns in New York State. Thank you so much. Great talking to you, and good luck with everything there. Thank you so much, Ken. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Walla Mouth podcast with Dan Barber, the chef and co-owner of Blue Hill and Blue Hill at Stone Barns in New York State. You'll find all of the recommendations mentioned in this episode and more in the Wall of Mouth app, available in your app store or visit our website at wallofmouth.app. I'm Kenneth Nars. Until next week, when we meet Chef Lennox Hasty from restaurant Firedoor in Sydney, Australia.